Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. Coming up on the show today, Nelly Lahoud, author of the new book, The Bin Laden Papers, how the Abbottabad raid revealed the truth about Al-Qaeda, its leader and his family. Uh, Nelly, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Richard. So congratulations on the book. Uh, so how did these Bin Laden papers come to be recovered? Well, there's a, there's a bit of a rich story behind, behind the papers, if I may, because uh, the reason why we have these papers is thanks to the SEALs uh, who carried out the raid. And at a certain point during the, the raid, when they discovered um, when they discovered the electronics and, and the computers um, on the second floor, they asked for extra time. Their mission was supposed to be completed within 30 minutes. Um, and uh, they ended up asking for this additional time. And Admiral McRaven, who oversaw the raid, uh, granted permission. And it is really thanks to these uh, perilous additional minutes, which uh, ended up being around 18 minutes that we have these papers. Now, it's a, it's a rich collection and it's all available online for all researchers to know. Um, and they, uh, they've been declassified over many years, started in 2012, but in November, 2017, the CIA declassified thousands of files, a massive volume consisting of text, audio, and video files. And I must have clicked on thousands of files before I determined that the text files were the most important. And with the help of two research assistants, we systematically went through all the text files, um, nearly 97,000 files. Most of them turned out to be newspaper articles and other materials that are publicly available. But um, within the text files, we also found Al-Qaeda's internal communications, nearly 6,000 Arabic pages. And um, these are really Al-Qaeda's closely guarded secrets. They were not meant for public consumption. Yeah, I mean, as you say, that story about their discovery is absolutely fascinating. It's it's how you start the book with the really the quick thinking of the of the the uh, the seals on the ground recognizing that this was something that was really important. They'd been given just thirty minutes to get in and out, but just asking for that extra crucial few minutes to gather this incredible uh, material. I mean, as you say, it's an archival treasure trove that otherwise we would not have had access to. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, we are very, very fortunate um, to have to have these these papers. Um, and, and it's thanks to these additional minutes. Now, a lot of the, the way in which you came to work on these was when you were working as a, as a civilian researcher at the Combating Terrorism Centre at West Point. I mean, uh, tell us a little bit about how you conduct your research, uh, how you actually go about disentangling, as you say, this, this vast array of different sources in different formats uh, completely uh, in a, that are a completely unorganised fashion. Yes, this is uh, this all started. My history with the document started back in 2012, when the Office of the Director of um, National Intelligence, the ODNI, 
declassified the first batch of documents. There were about 17 files at the time, and they declassified them through the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. Um, and at the time, I, I was working at the CTC, and I led the study that um, accompanied the release of these documents. Um, it's uh, it, the the letters are um, though it's a vast collection, um, and we have a lot of materials. As I said, about nearly six thousand Arabic pages. Um, they're not really straightforward. To start with, they were not written for public consumption, and the people who wrote them, Bin Laden and his top associates. Um, they wrote these letters and assumed that their interlocutors knew what they were talking about. So there's a marked difference between their polished public statements and their letters, which were often written in haste. Now, um, it's, uh, it, it was necessary for one person to read all these papers because sometimes, um, clues in one letters or vague references, I should say, in one letters could only be deciphered after recognizing and deciphering other clues in other letters. There, you really need to connect the dots between the various letters in order to put them together. Um, I have to say I'm very fortunate that uh, my research background includes and mentors um, include historians, political scientists, and philologists. And uh, analyzing Arabic texts has always been central to my research. And so this um, this has come in handy when I when to I to say the least. <laughs> yes, to, yes, that was that was very that was very helpful. And it's it is striking that I mean one of the the first things that you decide is that that actually the translations which had been done when the CIA initially released the documents uh, were inadequate. So the these are the, the the book is based on new translations, much of which you've done yourself. That's correct. I mean the office of the director of national intelligence. Um, the helpful thing that it did is that it when it when it declassified documents over several years, they categorized them. So the researchers knew what was internal documents, what were internal communications, and what were the secondary materials that, that they were reading. But they also provided translations that were also, they're all available on, on the websites. And frankly, I found them to be um, inadequate. Sometimes they were incomplete and um, on occasions, unintelligible. Now, to be fair, my my sense is that the intelligence communities prioritized what is called actionable intelligence, meaning looking for names of individuals who may pose a threat, a security threat. So on that front, I think they probably um, did a good job because many of the names that I came up in the letters, when I Googled them to find out who these people were, I would find out that they've been subsequently captured following the raid, which I think they must have done a good job in, in this respect. But in terms of content analysis, I found the translation to be very poor and inadequate. So I, I relied on my own uh, reading 
of of the Arabic uh, papers, and that that made them more intelligible. And as you uh, consistently point out in the book, one of the the good things about these papers is that they have been made available publicly that anyone can go on to the the various websites that you cite in the uh, in the book and follow up for themselves so that there is a there is a sense that you know this important material you've you're working on it but it is also out there for researchers to work on for really for generations to come absolutely and i very much hope that students will um will do that in the future as well as other analysts so yes they're all available and the bibliography in the book makes it really clear in terms of the documents that I cited and so on. So hopefully, uh, as I say in the book, it is the first systematic analysis of uh, uh, of these papers, but uh, certainly it will not be the last. And did you did you get a sense of of what had been held back? I mean, you you do make the point that, uh, for example, there are some explicit images that were found on on computers that were held back that, for example, for for obvious reasons. But did you did you think that there was any serious uh, intelligence which uh, which you wouldn't have uh, which you were not able to see? It is clear from the letters that some of the letters were either destroyed or not recovered. Um, now, the CIA, when it declassified this large volume of papers that I mentioned earlier, they did say that this is, this is everything that they're going to declassify, but they held things back. Now, I don't know, I did not benefit from having any conversations with the CIA about the collection to be honest, I'm not really sure that they that that there could be because a number of the letters I found them to be quite serious. For instance, in terms of plans for future attacks. So, if they were really going to hold back on some sensitive materials, I wouldn't have expected them to declassify these letters. So it's very difficult for me to say what might have been their reasoning. Um, I and and I don't know whether there are any uh, uh, serious letters that were not declassified. Having said that, um, and and you know, for historians like yourself, you would appreciate that even though we don't have all the letters, we are still able to reconstruct from existing letters uh, some aspects that were raised in in letters that were not recovered and uh, for this i can i can confidently say that we have enough material that would allow us to reconstruct the history of al qaeda post 9/11 at least the major key events plus much more yeah i think i think that's quite right about the archives and you know one of the one of the points that you that you make is that part of the job and and in fact what this book does so well is that you have this vast archive but really what you're trying to do is to create a narrative that provides us with a glimpse of uh, bin laden's thinking and and I, I did like the point that you made early on that so often narratives around 911 the war on terror focus on what did not happen your book really really is trying to show us what did happen as seen through the eyes of bin Laden himself. This was, I guess, the most daring thing about the book because 
I decided at a certain point when I began to realize that quite a lot of the history that we knew about Al-Qaeda or that was reported did not really did not really occur because the papers did not corroborate what was reported. I made the decision that I was going to treat the papers as a collection in their own right, meaning I wanted to reconcile the papers with the papers rather than reconciling the papers with what was already known. So as I say in the book, there may be certain gaps that I was not able to fill, but I chose purposely not to fill these gaps with the existing sec existing secondary materials because they got it wrong on so many issues. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I would rather provide an authoritative account of what happened rather than provide the complete account that is not as authoritative as um, the account that is based on the papers. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that the way in which uh, Bin Laden develops as a as a character across the 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 narrative that and and to me he came across as a as a, a fascinating mix of both a very methodical character but also a chaotic one too and that's I think that that's something uh, 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 juxtaposition that you really bring out well in the book is 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 that is that a correct characterization? Do you think you're absolutely correct? He's he he was a most impressive planner, methodical in in his approach to uh, uh, the particularly to attacks. So, for instance, we discovered from the letters that it was Bin Laden and not Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who came up with the idea of flying planes into buildings. Um, we observe his uh, methodical mind uh, in all the letters that he was planning attacks against the United States, both in 2004 in his 2004 letters, as well as later in 2010. But at the same time, what was, um, what was, what was, uh, most surprising to me is his lack of understanding of the limits of terrorism, what he could achieve through terrorism. Uh, his, he, he seemed to be somebody who was very learned about the early history of Islam. He followed the news, no doubt, um, but his, his understanding of of international relations and of how the world system operates is is uh, uh, sophomoric at best. Yeah, I I found that really interesting actually because you show how he is he's very learned about Islamic history and culture, but actually surprisingly shows little interest in the history, the culture, the philosophy of his of his enemies in the West. That uh, even though his own letters emphasise the need to know your enemy. His actual interest in, say, American history uh, is actually very slight. That's uh, that's correct. And in fact, the main part that interested him, and here we largely uh, he largely gets it right, despite some inaccuracies. He wanted um, he wanted to reach the American public. He did so firstly um, through 
the 9-11 attacks. He thought that it would be the um, Americans who would uh, uh, take to the streets following the attacks. They would, they would, um, uh, uh, they would rise up and protest. They replicate the um, Vietnam War protest, and they would call on their governments to withdraw from Muslim majority states. This was the primary objective of bin Laden and Al Qaeda. Firstly, through the 9-11 attacks, as well as other subsequent attacks that he fortunately, that his his uh, group fortunately could not deliver. Um, so he identified, he identified the real source of power. And, and towards the end, by 2010, we find uh, we find him having, if you like, a, a restrained admiration of the American people, describing them as the original source of power in the United States. And he really wanted their vote, um, but he didn't understand that through 9-11 attacks, he, he delivered the opposite. He wanted the United States to withdraw its military forces from Muslim majority states because he was convinced that the jihadis could defeat autocratic regimes in those states if they get the chance to fight them on a level playing field. Um, and that, that, was, that was his objective throughout. The opposite happened. Uh, uh, the American public stood by their president and they ended up, you know, the United States went to war first against Afghanistan, then uh, uh, in Iraq. And, and Bin Laden, and his associates had not planned for this. They assumed, they calculated that at most the United States would retaliate through um, a limited airstrike in Afghanistan, but they did not plan for war. And so when the war was launched, Al-Qaeda was left without even a plan A. And the story that occurred or the, 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 what happened to Al-Qaeda uh, uh, after 9-11 was absolutely not the objective that bin Laden had anticipated. And, and there is that tension that you demonstrate in the book, really, that runs throughout the, uh, the, the entire period, that on the one hand, they identify exactly, as you said before, this need to strike within the United States and Europe. But on the other hand, as, as, as bin Laden is constantly reminding his support, and, as, and again, as you mentioned there, that uh, he, he's constantly saying, look, the Russians were defeated in Afghanistan, the Americans were defeated in Vietnam, the French were defeated in Algeria, and by and large, this was done without the need for those, for those kinds of external strikes. So, so there is this, this strategic tension, uh, if you like, that really seems to uh, get, get to the heart of things. And that's that's uh, that's what we were talking about earlier. His his ability to assess international relations and and the limits of terrorism was highly deficient. 
Although, do you think that the the fact that he's thinking about the French in Algeria and the Americans in Vietnam and so on does at least show some kind of uh, historical sensibility, trying to uh, to think about how great powers uh, are defeated? Sure. No, no. That that that's what I said earlier. That he did have he did have that partly right, um, but he didn't he didn't expect what it he didn't anticipate what it means to be both attacking the Americans on their soil and at the same time calling for their love and sympathy. Um, it, it, um, he, he badly miscalculated on that front. Um, but, but you're right, he, we find him by 2010, he's making these comparisons uh, much more thoughtfully between what occurred after 9-11 and the Iraq war. And he calculates how many soldiers, um, and Amer American soldiers that is, were um, lost in Afghanistan and Iraq compared to those who, um, uh, uh, who were lost in Vietnam. And he, you know, he, though he never said mea culpa, that was a mistake and continued to refer to the 9-11 attacks as victories, he came to realize that the 9-11 attacks were a failure. And that's why he opted for towards the end, towards, you know, we find him in 2010, coming up with a completely different plan that would again um, touch or um, trying to seek the support of the American people. Now, in 2010, he uh, became convinced that Al-Qaeda would come to an end if it didn't change its strategy. And the reason he thought that is because in the wake of US-led um, invasion of Afghanistan and the, to the collapse of the Taliban regime, Al-Qaeda never recovered its ability to mount international terrorism. Um, so by 2010, he wanted to achieve what he called a balance of terror with the United States. And this time he wanted to destroy 30% of the American economy by sinking some of the largest oil tankers exporting oil to the United States. Now, he's, he did his homework on that front. There is a limited number of these vessels in the world. There's about 730 of them. And each one of them carries up to 2.2 million barrels of crude oil. And his idea was that Al-Qaeda would carry out simultaneous attacks, targeting oil tankers along several shipping routes. And at the time, in 2010, the United States was still reliant on importing oil. And as we said earlier, his plans were highly detailed and methodical. He thought of everything, um, the surveillance methods the operatives should follow, um, the type of wooden boat they should purchase, the precise volume of explosives that they should prepare. Um, and he believed that the attacks would have an impact on the income of all Americans and anticipated again, like he did for 9-11, that they would take to the streets and replicate the Vietnam anti-war protest and force their governments um, to withdraw from the Middle East through their votes. Now, fortunately, 
um, because of the raid, and I suspect because uh, the raid not only did it eliminate bin Laden, but because of the papers, I suspect that they were able to um, uncover the whereabouts of um, the lead, the operative who was tasked with overseeing these attacks. And he was captured sometimes, I think, in July or August uh, after the raid, a few months after the raid. I, I, I wonder as well that, I mean, precisely as you've described there, there's there's this contradiction between a, a character who is he's methodical, does his homework, was the phrase that you used, uh, alongside uh, someone who is incompetent uh, ta tactically and strategically. Uh, the one thing that you do say is consistent is that he does seem to be somebody who was sincere about his ideals and beliefs. In other words, that the book sh does show that whatever we think of him, that he was pretty much saying the same things in private uh, as he was saying in public. That's absolutely correct. You know, I expected when I first started reading the papers, I expected that at a certain point, I'm going to find something in the letters that would undermine him in the eyes of his supporters. And I didn't. And um, uh, uh, despite everything that we might conclude about bin Laden, uh, his supporters would find nothing in the papers that would incriminate bin Laden. He, uh, he sacrificed his fortune for the cause in which he believed. He wanted to um, enhance and ameliorate the well-being of fellow Muslims, particularly those in, in states that are uh, run by autocratic regimes. Um, and he never at any point considered compromising his jihadi principles in return for, say, a deal that would find him, you know, in exile at a country living comfortably and so on. At no point uh, did he ever entertain such thoughts. And, and yes, he, he was killed uh, as, as somebody who remained committed to the cause until the very end. Yeah, and I wonder about that uh, that sense of the cause as well. I mean, you tread a very narrow path at the end of the book. You point out that uh, correctly that that most Muslims do not um, sign up to the violence as as uh, Osama bin Laden wanted them to. But but you also point out that many do share his disgust about the regimes in the Middle East um, that he tried to overthrow, about the Western governments which have propped up uh, many of those regimes. So uh, I, I wonder, what do you think that this means for the Middle East uh, and for the West, including the United States today? Well, I hope I hope that some of the letters I mean, or parts of the letters would would present a different understanding of how Al Qaeda's terrorism was mounted. That uh, that we're not dealing here with people who were, um, as it was put at some point, that they were coward and extremist and, you know, they don't, they don't, they hate our democracy and freedom and so on and so forth. Clearly, this was not the case. Um, in terms of, in terms of bin Laden and his associates' objectives, when it comes to uh, airing the grievances of what happens, particularly in the Middle East, and that they, they spoke 
they spoke the language of grievances very well, and they were they were um, they were sincere about it. They were very sincere about it, as as I discovered in the letters. Now it's one thing to be sincere about this; it's another how to go about and delivering um, change. And this is where um, this is where I think Bin Laden failed mainstream Muslims on so many on so many levels. And and one of the things that that um, also surprised me is that he continued to think of himself as mainstream. He continued to think that he could count on the support of mainstream Muslims. And he, when he would write in his, in his uh, letters that uh, the Muslim public is repulsed by some of the attacks carried out by jihadi groups in the name of Al-Qaeda, he himself was repulsed by these attacks because he thought of himself to be, to be part of the mainstream, which is, again, um, the contradictions between somebody who is such a methodical planner and at the same time delusional on some, on some issues, it, it becomes confounding. Um, so to, to your point, uh, I do hope that, uh, that the United States and various other countries would, would learn from, from, uh, uh, these papers and Perhaps the U.S. policies towards the Middle East would um, would change. I mean, it's you know the 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 when when Bin Laden speaks of autocratic regimes stealing the wealth of their people, he's not mistaken. The fact that uh, that he he committed, he ordered um, nine eleven. It doesn't make these other issues to be uh, irrelevant. So the book is The Bin Laden Papers, How the Abbottabad Raid Revealed the Truth About Al-Qaeda, Its Leader and His Family. It's written by my guest, Nelly Lahoud, and published by Yale University Press. But for now, Nelly, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.